Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I am Ishwarya, your host for this episode. And I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. We also want to thank our newest patrons, Divya, Jason Joseph, and Ira Jain. Thank you so much for any contribution you make in running this podcast. The case that we have for you today is not just a case. It's a saga. This is a story of not one murder, it's a story of 12. 21-year-old American woman drugged and drowned in Bangkok. Turkish man found doused in gasoline and burnt to death near Pattaya. Dutch couple found drugged, strangled and burnt alive in Thailand and the countless news reports of dead or missing foreign nationals just wouldn't stop. This is the story of one man behind these killings and this is the story of one man that uncovered it all. This is the story of Charles Sobraj. Ashwara, when we have cases where there is one death, right? The entire case is revolving around one victim. It's like we can highlight the story of the victim so much more. But 12 murders almost seems to diminish each single murder and the stories melt together. And I, I have a feeling it's the same with this one, right? There are 12 stories, but can we do justice to each one of them? And it just seems like they don't stand out anymore. I understand exactly what you're saying Aran this is funnily enough a stalin quote isn't it the death of one man is a tragedy but the death of millions is a statistic I was about to say yeah yeah and while I was researching for this case I knew I had a tough task in front of me the task to make sure that by the end of this episode it doesn't feel like there were just 12 bodies just 12 random foreign nationals that were found dead in some country on this planet These are 12 stories of 12 very real people, people with families, people that had dreams and goals, real people like you and me whose lives were taken from them. And while we may not be able to cover all 12, the ones that we do cover, they need to be done justice to. All right, having said the number 12 enough times, one final <laughs> time, tell us who these 12 people are and tell us who is the man behind these 12 murders and tell us who is the man that uncovered it all so we're beginning this episode in an iconic period of history in fact aryan i'll ask this question only because i know the answer to this question which time period would you like to be born in if you had that choice oh 
hundred percent. The answer is the seventies. Uh, yeah. And we're going to the seventies. Let's go. Let's. I <laughs> I I love the seventies. The seventies were insane. For the twenty years before then, beginning in the nineteen fifties, a counterculture had started to emerge in the Western world: a culture of psychedelic music, a culture of sexual revolution and liberation, a culture heavy on drug use and heavy on Eastern philosophy. Seventies, baby, let's go. The seventies. <laughs> This was a culture that many believed was the way to spiritual enlightenment. By the time the seventies rolled around, this culture or the hippie culture was in full swing. During this twenty-year span, thousands and thousands of Western youngsters, people our age, packed up a backpack, hopped onto a bus, and flocked to countries like India, Nepal, Thailand, and Indonesia through a route that came to be called the Hippie Trail. Now, make no mistake. This wasn't a culture of just degenerate young people only obsessed with drugs, sex and partying. Members of this culture actively followed Hindu and Buddhist religious philosophy as a means to spiritual freedom, and many of them went on to work at ashrams and monasteries across Asia. In fact, take any absolutely any famous western musician of this time period and chances are they were all influenced by and active participants in the hippie movement the beatles were icons of the hippie movement and considered themselves to be hippies too they traveled to india often and stayed at an ashram in rishikesh all throughout their career from jimi hendrix to the grateful dead from stevie wonder to bob dylan each of these artists was a hippie icon and actively participated in this culture but there was a small problem These westerners unaware of the culture and land they were entering unable to speak local languages would sometimes end up disappearing in a time before the internet before smartphones or video calling their families had no idea what happened to these kids were they killed or did they simply join an ashram and refuse to contact their families there was no way of knowing and this is where we're beginning 1976 Thailand in 1976 Bangkok Thailand's capital was a hustling and bustling city a city of tourists many of whom were these hippies the city was full of the dutch the french the american it was a breeding ground of hippie culture living in bangkok during this time was a couple a couple that was about to make history this couple was dutchman herman knippenberg and his german wife angela Herman was a 31-year-old, young, hard-working and honest Dutch diplomat working at the Dutch embassy in Bangkok. Angela wasn't just Herman's wife living in his shadows. She was and is even today in many ways way more remarkable than any of the remarkable people we've covered on this podcast. She spoke 6 languages. She got her degrees from Bryn Mawr College and the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. and by the 1960s was working with the World Bank in Washington DC she then joined the United Nations Secretariat in 1977 and eventually was the UN high representative for disarmament affairs but this tiny list doesn't even begin to explain the work she's done you're looking for inspiring women go and read up about her But this is past the point. The point is, Angela and Herman were a deeply loving couple, both incredible in their own ways, who had moved together to Thailand in an exciting and new phase of their life. 
the calm and peace of their happy lives in a new country was disturbed on the 6th of February 1976 when Herman received a letter on his work desk. The letter was from a Dutch man who was writing to the Dutch embassy in desperation, pleading for help. He had every reason to be desperate. His sister-in-law Cornelia and her boyfriend Hernicus, who had left to travel on the hippie trail, hadn't written to their family in 6 weeks. According to the letter, this wasn't normal. Cornelia and Hernicus would write to them very regularly ever since they left for the trip. In fact, they wrote a letter twice every week. But for the last 6 weeks, there was complete silence. Hernicus was 29 years old and even though he had a master's degree in chemistry he had struggled for the last few years getting a job or getting into a good med school and naturally he became a hippie <laughs> that he did Cornelia his girlfriend was a 25 year old nurse and according to an article by the lineup her blonde hair and blue eyes made her a poster of all things dutch The two lived a simple and happy life together in a small and comfortable house where the two cooked a lot together they rode their bike around town together sometimes they smoked up together and even though life was difficult they were figuring it out with each other they were crazy about each other but slowly Hernicus who was lovingly called Henk grew more and more frustrated by his inability to find work The finances were getting to the couple. There wasn't enough money to keep afloat. In quintessential young person style of the 70s, when the couple began to feel overly burdened by their situation, they decided to travel the world. <laughs> the two began working extra hard to collect enough money to just, excuse my language, fuck off far far away from the problems of the real world. In fact, shortly before the couple left on their journey, Hank told one of his best friends, Benjamin, "Quote, we'll probably regret this, but we're going to spend every dime we have. But if we don't do it, we never will." End quote. Benjamin agreed. "Don't look back," he said. "This trip is something everybody would like to do. It will pay itself back in a thousand unknown ways." End quote. The couple began their travels going from one country to another finally ending up in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong on the busy market streets the couple made a friend. This friend was a man named Alain Gautier, a Frenchman from Bangkok who was in Hong Kong for business. Alain was a man of mixed race just like Henk and the two bonded over the discrimination they had faced in majority white countries. Hank was half Dutch and half Indonesian, while Alain was half Vietnamese and half Indian, but grew up in France. They both came to understand each other. Alain was also wealthy in the exact ways that Hank and Cornelia wished to be. He took them out to lunch at the Hyatt Regency and walks down the most expensive streets of the city where shops were decorated with jewels. He took them across Victoria Harbour, which is one of the world's best ferry rides. He invited them to his hotel room in the city where he offered them imported whiskey and beer that the couple drank for free. It made sense that Alain was this wealthy. He was a gem dealer after all. In fact, Hank confided in Alain about how crazily in love with Cornelia he was. He was thinking about proposing, but all the rings he had liked in Hong Kong were too expensive for him to afford. Can I just say something? Yep. Uh, and none of this seems out of the ordinary right, right. Uh, you know 
things happen when you travel you meet rich people and you know they take you out on treats and that has happened with me i've i've met random strangers who've been extremely generous but let me just say this so guys i do not watch true crime documentaries on netflix that's that's not what i do for fun <laughs> but very recently your beloved and my beloved co-host ishwarya made me watch the tinder swindler with her and if if the tinder swindler if you haven't seen it you should see it if it is any lesson is that if a rich man especially if he is into the diamond or gem industry <laughs> takes you out on these lavish streets it's a red flag it's a 100% a red flag and i'm glad aran got some lessons from what i showed him you all should watch that documentary but only if hank had seen the tinder swindler <laughs> By this time, Alain, who had become very close to the couple, actually offered to procure a sapphire ring from his own private collection and sell it to the couple for just US dollars 1600, which was less than half the cost of any other sapphire ring on the market at the time. Alain introduced the couple to his wife too, a gorgeous Canadian woman named Monique. Cornelia and Monique grew closer and so did Alain and Hank. Eventually, Hank proposed to Cornelia in front of his two close friends with the ring that they had sold to them. Cornelia wrote of their new friends in the letters she wrote back to her family in Holland. "Quote: Our new friend's name is Alain, and he's invited us to visit him in Bangkok." End quote. Shortly after that, the letters stopped. The couple did reach Bangkok. There was a record of that. but they never checked into the hotel they booked which is why cornelia's brother-in-law wrote to the dutch embassy in bangkok asking pleading for help finding the two hmm. herman knippenberg the dutch diplomat was adamant on helping the family find their children but when he told the higher ups at the embassy of the missing couple nobody seemed to care this was the problem of the foreigners on the hippie trail The Dutch ambassador who can for the lack of a better word be considered Herman's boss told Herman exactly that their disappearance wasn't uncommon in fact many times they disappeared and joined cults or religious institutions out of their own free will the embassies were sick of these cases they had to focus their resources on matters more important than young people on drugs who had forgotten that there was a real world out there This is what he told Herman. The hippies were a pain to these diplomats. This ambassador that Herman went to for help was obviously frustrated. To explain his frustration, he told Herman a story. A few weeks ago, two dead bodies of a man and a woman were found about 80 kilometers north of Bangkok. The Australian embassy was informed of these bodies because the Australian embassy was in search of a missing Australian couple on the hippie trail. who were last seen in Bangkok the bodies were set on fire while the couple was still alive their faces were disfigured the case was tragic the australian authorities assumed these dead bodies to be of the missing australian couple johnson and rosanna watson they informed the families and began their verification process but in the middle of all of that Johnson and Rosanna Watson just showed up. That's annoying. They'd been living in isolation, high on drugs, uh. and they had suddenly decided to return. The point that this ambassador was trying to make was this: 
irresponsible hippie kids waste government resources worry their own families and take up public money all for nothing but all herman heard from this story yeah. was this means there are two dead bodies in some morgue in bangkok that are unidentified i was like dude add 1 plus 1 <laughs> yep and herman did he thought these bodies could be hank and cornelia Herman knew exactly what he had to do. He found a Dutch dentist in Bangkok willing to help him and he gave him the dental records of Hank and Cornelia. He instructed the dentist to visit the burnt bodies in the morgue and see if by some long shot of fate this could be their bodies. The dentist did as instructed and called Herman at his office a few days later. It's a match, he said. As Herman would begin the investigation into the deaths of Hank and Cornelia, little did he know just how many people had been disappearing in Bangkok over the last few months and how many would continue to disappear. Teresa Knowlton was a beautiful 21-year-old from Seattle in the United States who had come to Bangkok in 1975 a year before Hank and Cornelia had. after being heavily influenced by buddhist philosophy she wanted to travel all the way to kathmandu to study at a tibetan monastery in kopan but before she became a monk in nepal she wanted to enjoy her last few weeks as a young 21 year old during her travels this was the deal she made with herself she'll party and have sex and meet new people on the way to nepal but once she reached the monastery she'd leave that life behind her to find a greater purpose to find enlightenment I, i'll just say this that's not how it works no unfortunately not <laughs> in bangkok teresa made friends with other backpackers on one of those evenings these backpackers invited teresa to a poolside party at the residence of a wealthy gem salesman and his wife living in bangkok a man named alain gautier and let me guess his wife was also beautiful His wife was beautiful. She wow. was Canadian. Her name was Monique. We know the story. <laughs> This man was warm and welcoming, charming and charismatic. He had a reputation for inviting young backpackers to his lavish bungalow called Kanith House and let them have a good time before they left Bangkok. Teresa was excited. Teresa went to Kanith House that night for the party. She drank, she danced, she had fun, and she was never heard from ever again. On the 18th of October 1975, just a few days after Teresa went to the party, her body was found floating in the Gulf of Thailand in nothing but a beautiful flowery bikini. It was obvious this was a murder, not an accidental drowning. Teresa was drugged with a highly sedative drug called Largactil, used to treat severe depression, and while she was still alive, she was drowned. We know this because there was water in her lungs. While alarm was being raised in Bangkok over the body of Teresa and while the local newspapers began to talk about the possibility of a bikini killer on the loose, a young Turkish man named Vitali Hakim was planning a trip to Bangkok. Let me just point this out. The fact that there was water in her lungs means she was alive she was probably you know scrambling for help and she inhaled the water in yep. and hence it's in the lung exactly and that's how we know she was alive because she was breathing while she was in water so like i said vitali hakim is planning a trip to bangkok 
Hakim was a drug dealer coming to Bangkok to conduct drug sales among a market of hippies. He knew this was where the drug industry was booming. He left behind the woman he loved, a French woman named Charmaine and the daughter that he had with her to go to Bangkok for just a few weeks. He told them he'd come back soon. But Charmaine never heard from Hakim ever again. Her daughter never saw her father ever again. When weeks passed and Hakim didn't return, Charmaine left her daughter with her mother back in France and booked a flight to Bangkok to find the man she loves. She knew where Hakim had last been. He had written to her. He said he had made friends with a couple in Bangkok. No, 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 no. Who the could that couple, be? <laughs> gem dealer Alain Gauthier and his wife Monique. The two had been nice to him. They had invited him over to their gorgeous home, Kanith House. They had offered him free food and alcohol and a place to stay if he needed it. And so, Charmaine went to Kanith House the second she arrived in Bangkok. Charmaine met Monique. The women talked. She told Monique she was looking for her husband and asked if she knew where he was. Then entered Alain. Alain and Monique told Charmaine they had met Hakim. He had come over for a party, but they hadn't seen him ever since. They had no information of help that they could offer her, but they could be of comfort to her and be her friends in this time when she needed friends. Alain offered Charmaine a cup of tea. Charmaine drank it, and nobody heard from Charmaine ever again. Her mother waited and waited. and waited for her daughter to return Charmaine's young daughter waited for her mother and father to return but they never did weeks later Hakim's body was found burnt and charred on a roadside in Pattaya shortly after that Charmaine's body was found floating on the gorgeous waters of the Gulf of Thailand in a bikini the exact place where Teresa Knowlton's body was also found this was all 1975 now we're back in present day 1976 when that letter arrived at Herman's desk the letter from Cornelia's brother-in-law by this time Teresa Hakim Charmaine Hank and Cornelia have all been found dead Their one connection, their one common denominator, is their encounter with the wealthy gem dealer Alain Gauthier and his wife Monique. It's almost as if Kanith House had become the Bermuda Triangle for wandering tourists. They would come, they would write to their families of these amazing new friends they've made, and they would vanish. Weeks later, their bodies would be found. The men would be found burnt alive. the women drowned alive all bodies would show remnants of some drug either the strong sedative largactil or the strong antacid caopectate or the hypnotic drug mogadon or the illegal drug qualudes these were five deaths but how come nobody was drawing a connection why was nobody going to the cops how was herman knippingberg actively working on the deaths of hank and cornelia unable to realize there were other murders of the same nature all that led back to the same man Alain Gautier these are all valid questions but there's one simple answer to each and every one of these questions 
for long after these people disappeared it seemed like they were still alive their passports continued to be used there were records of all of these people leaving bangkok for example hank and cornelia were recorded leaving bangkok just 2 days after herman received the letters about their disappearance this wasn't all all of these travelers had something called a travelers check in their name they withdrew a travelers check from their own countries for a specific amount of money and when they arrived to their new destination they took this travelers check to a local bank which gave them money but in the local currency for them to use multiple banks in bangkok had records of all of these travelers checks of teresa and hank and cornelia and hakim being withdrawn much after they had disappeared this to the local cops could mean only one thing these people were alive they were leaving and entering thailand they were withdrawing money they were simply refusing to contact their families back home and that plays perfectly into the hippie narrative where exactly yeah that's what i was going to say like i've said many times before this kind of behavior by hippies wasn't unusual and would you say this is unfair for the cops and ambassadors to assume that well it, this is just another case it's of- a figment of overburdened local authorities mm. who have too much on their plate all of these were democracies that were recently independent and had problems of their own with crime to want them to care about these sometimes wealthy foreign travelers on drugs was also a little plus unfair. the local bureaucracy's paradigm is canonical right it's so limited yep. the scope is from what they have seen right. you need an outsider to step in in such a situation absolutely was and i don't know how to pronounce his name and i'll soon learn how to was knippenberg 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 was he the outsider he was the outsider yes but if this was the problem of hippie travel for local authorities this was a problem of hippie travel for herman too he was realizing there was something fishy about all of these bodies showing up but going to the local authorities became useless till he had better proof that the people whose bodies were being found were actually the people he was claiming them to be he needed more evidence heaps and heaps more of evidence and this evidence came in the form of one person nadine gear alain and monique's close friend and neighbor If Herman and his wife Angla are one pair of heroes in the story, Nadine and her husband Remy are another. Originally from Normandy in France, Nadine and Remy had moved to Bangkok for Remy's work as a chef. They had ended up purchasing the apartment right across from the Kanith house and slowly over the years became very close friends with Alain and Monique. Nadine had since come forward to say Alan was always terrifying to her but Monique almost seemed like a victim a meek woman in Alan's shadows Nadine herself was incredibly lonely her husband's long working hours him hardly ever being home meant that she needed friends in this rough time Alan's charm and charisma and Monique's welcoming comfort drew Nadine to the couple Nadine became one of the insiders. She became friends with all of the members of the Kanith house, not just Alain and Monique. All of the members of the Kanith house? <laughs> Does that mean there were more than two? <laughs> yes, it did. In Kanith house there lived not just Alain and Monique, 
but also Anna's right-hand man, an Indian man named Ajay Chaudhary, and the couple's house help, a 19-year-old French boy who was always in poor health, named Dominique. The dynamics of the house were weird with all of these different people living under the same roof. 19-year-old French boy who's a domestic help. Uh-huh. And always in poor health. Ajay Chaudhary, yep. who is Allah's right-hand man. Yep. And a meek wife who seems like the a victim. victim of Allah. And the dynamic and charismatic Allah. There were a lot of clashing personalities in this house. Which is why I said the dynamics were weird. There always seemed to be friction. Friction between Monique and Ajay. But both Nadine and Monique had a soft spot for Dominique. In fact, Nadine eventually came to develop a close friendship with Dominique. And this friendship reached its closest when Monique, Alain and Ajay left for vacation, leaving Dominique alone in the house. Thinking Dominique was alone in the house, Nadine and Remy decided to visit him to make sure he was doing fine since ever since Dominique had arrived in Bangkok, he had been incredibly unwell. It was on that visit that Nadine and Remy realized they had been partying with, living with, hanging out with a group of murderers. Dominique tells Nadine and Remy the harrowing story of how he ended up in Allah's house and why he's unable to leave. Dominique had left his family back in France to travel the world. He worked on a yacht for a while before ending up in Bangkok, trying to figure out his next move to earn more money while also being able to travel. It was in Bangkok that he met Alain and Monique. The couple invited Dominique over for dinner and asked him if he's okay helping the couple out with everyday errands in the house in exchange for a place to live. Dominique obviously said yes. The opportunity of a free apartment just to help out with household errands? It was perfect. He could save up some money by taking up another job on the side and soon enough he could move on to his next travel expedition or maybe even go back home to his parents who he was now beginning to miss. But that dinner is the last memory Dominique has of himself not being unwell. The next morning, Dominique wakes up in Alain's residence and he couldn't stop throwing up. Alain and Monique comfort him, tell him he's sick, but that the doctors in Bangkok were useless. It was better if the couple cured Dominique in the house itself. It had been three months since then. Since then, Dominique had lost so much weight, his ribcage stuck out of his skin. He threw up almost every day and showed no signs of recovery. But by this time, Alain had gained Dominique's trust. He became Dominique's confidant. Dominique couldn't think of questioning him. However, as time went on, Dominique noticed a pattern. Foreign travellers would come to the Kanith house. The couple would feed them food, give them drinks. The travellers would fall sick in ways remarkably similar to those of Dominique. They would faint, they would sweat, they would throw up, complain of a stomachache. Allah and Monique would promise to nurse them back to health and then these people would disappear. Dominique had personally watched Teresa get sick and then disappear. He had watched Hakim get sick and then disappear. He had watched Henk and Cornelia get sick and then disappear. On multiple nights, he had woken up to the sound of Allah and Ajay carrying someone down the stairs out of the house 
and every time he was told they were taking a sick backpacker to the hospital that backpacker was never seen again hmm so dominique wasn't taken to the hospitals because the doctors of bangkok are useless but but everyone else but was. everyone else was yep hmm. slowly dominique stopped taking the medication the couple had been feeding him and slowly his health became better as dominique is narrating this story to nadine and remy the couple has chills running down their spines they can't fathom what they're hearing but hearing it out loud almost makes it all make sense mm. they ask dominique why he hasn't run away yet and a crying sobbing dominique tells them that he can't he has no form of identification and no money to use for even a bus ticket he came to bangkok with his passport which ala kept in a safe inside the house and dominique has never seen his passport ever since Nadine and Remy knew they needed to help their friend. They had to save him before he ended up dead or burnt on the side of some street in Bangkok. They promised him they'd buy him a flight ticket back to France, but they needed to find his passport before they could do that. The three began searching the house for the key to the safe, and after hours of searching, they find it. They open the safe, and they can't believe what they see inside. Inside is not just Dominique's passport. There's the passports of so many travelers that had stopped over at the Kanith house, so many of oh whom God. they now assumed were dead. You know one thing you don't realize, I mean a passport is quite a flimsy little document of right. paper, but when you're traveling and you're not in your own country, as yep. as both of us aren't right now, right? We're recording this from US and we're Indians. The passport is literally your life and in no metaphorical sense it's yeah. literally legally your representation of who you are in this country and to have multiple passports found in a safe yep. i can't express to you what that actually means without our passports nobody in this country or on this planet would believe we're indians we'd have nobody to claim our identity that would be it and to then find 30 or whatever yep, or so misplaced passports in a safe yeah it's fine it's almost it's not exactly but it's almost like finding 30 people yep in a vault but this wasn't all aryan as they picked up dominique's passport and opened it they realized the photograph inside was not of dominique's at all it was alas He had been using the passports of the people he had been keeping captive or killing and traveling on them to evade the police and conceal his identity. Allah was committing fraud so complicated and so thought out it would require the coming together of police forces from so many countries in one collaborated mission to catch him. Far from that, Allah wasn't even on anyone's radar at this point. But now he was on Nadine and Remy's. The couple spent the rest of the night cutting out Alain's picture from the passport and putting Dominique's back in place. They then realized Dominique's visa to stay in Bangkok had expired. If the airport authorities saw that, they'd put him in prison and Alain would come get him and then definitely murder him. Nobody would hear from Dominique ever again. So they took out one of the many other passports inside the safe, 
cut out a valid visa from it and attached it to Dominique's passport. As shaky as this plan was, it was either this or nothing. It was either this or Dominique's death. No, why couldn't they have gone to the French embassy and appealed his case? Firstly, Arjan, everybody knew that Alain was a big man and had connections with the cops and the embassies. Secondly, without identification, like you just said, without his passport, I doubt anyone would have taken Dominique seriously. But couldn't he have shown the passport that was actually his without his photo? And how do you prove that's not Allah? I'm sure there is some way to prove that the passport has been meddled with. I'm sure it could have, Aran, but... In the moment, Nadine and Remy were just told this shocking detail and their friend was begging for a way back home. They did what they could. And again, who was going to believe a 19-year-old hippie kid? The couple spent the rest of the night putting Dominique's passport back in place. This was their only way out. The passport looked real, sort of, and so did the visa. They booked Dominique a flight to France for that night, called him a cab and hugged him goodbye. They told him to write to them from France just so they'd know he's safe. Dominique agreed. That night marked the beginning of the end for Alain. But did Dominique get back safe? No. Did Nadine and Remy ever get a letter from him or did someone catch him at the airport? What was going to happen when Alain, Monique and Ajay returned and realised Dominique was gone? Would they figure out it was Nadine and Remy and kill them too? Wait, who is Alain? Who is Monique? Are they just committing murder after murder after murder for small amounts of money in the form of travellers' checks from hippie children and for the sake of faking passports? Where is Herman's investigation leading him? I know you're all thinking these questions and I have your answers. But to know them, come back to part two of the Bikini Serial Killer.